Amen. Good morning. Uh, so before we dive in, I want to give us a little bit of a recap and a reorientation. Uh, I used an analogy a couple weeks back, or I think it was the first week, on the, um, how we watch football games. And uh, we see different action on the field and on the sideline from different vantage points. Uh, you've got these multiple camera angles that are running concurrently uh, so that we get the entire picture. We don't think about all that goes into it when we're home watching them. And the book of Revelation is similar to that. In that, in each of our sections, in each sermon, we're looking at the book of Revelation from a particular purview. There is a, a vantage point and a purpose that the Holy Spirit is giving John. So, so far, we looked at our first section, chapters 1 through 3. Uh, Christ reminds his church, as they are in conflict with the world, that they are his light, that they are his lampstands, real people, real churches, real, real problems that give us principles as we, the church, in the uh, church age, are in conflict with the world. Next, the church is to look to the throne in heaven. We began in, in chapter 4 through, through chapter 7. Christ the King in his, in his coronation, he, he ascends before the throne of the Father and the Lamb who is worthy because he was slain can now come and that, that glorious throne is a place where he's handed a scroll and seals and he's the only one worthy to open the seals. And the seals remind us and they, they show the church persecution's coming, trials are coming, but he is Lord. And through him, you are sealed, another use of the term, you are stamped, you are protected, you are saved, you are held in him. And even though the seals of the scroll may be intimidating, the seals of the people of God will never move because he has sealed them. But in the meantime, there's a cry from the people of God who are persecuted, who have been martyred, and they say, how long? How long before you take out your vengeance on your enemies? How long, Lord, before you judge the wicked? And so today, we're going to look at the Lord answering those prayers. We're going to look at the current judgment of the wicked world, and they promised final judgment that will come for the wicked. And will again finish with the final victory of Jesus Christ. Uh, each one of these sections, you will see this pattern. God is sovereign. God's people and the world is in turmoil. Christ is victorious. So as we begin to work through a lot of details that may seem confusing, they do build on one another. Um, I want us to see the painting, again, using the, the, the Monea analogy. Don't get lost in, in the, in the brushstrokes. But see how all of the brushstrokes, all of the details contribute to the painting. So uh, lastly, before we begin, I'll tell you admittedly, this is the hardest section in Revelation by far. Um, so you're going to hear me say something I don't say very often, and you're going to get used to it. Very simple phrase. What does this mean? And I will respond with, I don't know. Uh, so you're going to hear quite a bit of that this morning, and because I've read many people, and no one really knows. So... That's, that's fine. We're not, we're not meant to. Um, I'll also admit about this, this text. Last week was a lot of fun to preach. It is much more. I, I told Noah last night when I was like here till 
11 trying to figure out how I uh, can trim down six hours worth of sermon into what you're going to see this morning. Um, but I told Noah, it's way more fun to preach salvation and redemption than it is judgment. But we must be faithful to the word of God, and there's a lot of judgment, uh, and it is deserved. But I want you to see God's purpose in it, and that it is God himself who is sovereign even over judgment. Uh, so I'm just going to read chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll work our way through uh, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on all the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings, flashing and lightning, and an earthquake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that through your word you spoke the world into existence. Through your word you sent your Son and your spirit to redeem and to seal us, to bring us to new life. Through your word, we heard the good news. And through your word, we find our comfort and our hope and our faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Lord, would your saints be encouraged this morning? Would we find hope in the midst of difficulty and suffering and the sins of this world that it afflict us all? Because our hope, our sure hope, he will return. He is coming for us, and he comes in victory. And I also ask for anyone here this morning, Lord, who is still under your wrath, who thinks that they can stand before your great throne of judgment, who does not know the lightning and the thunder and the earthquake that comes at the sound of your voice. Lord, would they hear your word, fear you, and fall before you and worship in repentance and faith so that we may celebrate with the hosts of heaven that our God saves and redeems sinners, calling the lost to himself, bringing the dead to life. And it is only through Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, this operates as a thematic but also literary transition between the seals and the trumpets. So uh, there's a large break between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. It's kind of the question anticipated here, what's behind door number seven? It's the seven trumpets. Um, And so I want to talk about the uh, seals and trumpets for just a, a moment. Now remember, the seals are something that only Christ can open. They were They were closing the scroll that is God's divine decree that only he knows and only God himself is, is worthy to open. And so when the, the seals are open, it reveals to the church, those sealed in Christ on earth, that Christ has authority over the decrees of God, but also gives them an anticipation of what's going to happen. Now, the trumpets parallel the seals. 
The seals are a revealing to the church of what will happen. The trumpets are a warning to the world of what they face if they don't repent. The trumpets are warnings to the unsealed that God is judging the world. And there is a final judgment coming. You should repent. Later on in chapters 15 and 16, we're going to get into the bowls. So the seals are God revealing to his church what will happen. The trumpets are God announcing, proclaiming to the world that judgment is coming. The bowls is judgment poured out. These are bowls full of wrath that are poured out on, on the earth. And these three run concurrent. Uh, there are three different ways of, of looking at this. Um, and they do parallel one another. Three vantage points using three symbols. Uh, so I want to look at some details quickly because these first five verses kind of set us up here. Um, one of the things that you'll see this morning and you've seen so far that Revelation does is that Revelation encourages us uh, to go back and read our Old Testament, to, to look at the, uh, the uh, symbolism. There's so much. I've said this several times, but the book of Revelation has more Old Testament uh, quotations, citations, and allusions than any other book in the New Testament. In fact, all the other New Testament books put together. So you can see a lot of symbolism this morning, but I hope in looking at the end of the story, it helps us to read God's plan of redemption. And I hope you're encouraged because God is not opening up plan B here. God is not responding to our actions. This is God's plan all along. The scriptures are consistent from beginning to end. What the, the, the prophets looked forward to and longed for, we see clearly and has been revealed to us in the scriptures. So the first thing I want you to see here, uh, the, the lamb again opens the seventh seal. And then there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour. This is all throughout the prophets. When there is silence, you should be very afraid. When there is silence in, in heaven, it symbolizes the uh, presence of God and fearing him, but also he's about to do something. There's something coming, and it's usually judgment. Just one example is Zechariah 2.13. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. We should tremble at God rousing himself. So this, this silence took place for about an hour and a half, or excuse me, a half an hour. Um, throughout Revelation, really throughout the, the uh, New Testament, uh, hour is symbolic for appointed time. Jesus, will tell, there, Jesus tells us there's an hour that is coming. Um, and it's usually unpredictable. We don't know. So an hour is a, uh, an appointed time by God. Half an hour just um, means that, it, that it's shortened. But we're going to see halves often in the book of Revelation. A time, time, and half a time. Year, another year, and half a year. When, when, when you see halves, that means time is cut short. And usually, it's some kind of judgment. It's, it's, it's some kind of consequence for human action. So we get this appointed time in, in heaven um, where God is going to apply his judgment to human action. And throughout this little section, there's lots of temple imagery, imagery of holiness. The, the angels stand before God. There's a throne. There's the, the altar, um, the repetition all throughout here. This is the, the same holy throne of God. So everything we're about to see 
is coming from God's dwelling place. God's temple, God's sanctuary, where he is. This is the true temple, the one that was built on earth that was supposed to point to. This is where God is. This is where blessing comes from, and this is where judgment comes from. And the other thing I want you to pick up on that is repeated here, the prayers of the saints. Remember last week, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Notice verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. I want you to just stop and think about that. Brothers and sisters, when we pray, we have a high priest, a mediator, who has cleansed us with his blood, who sanctifies our prayers so that they are worthy to be incense before the nostrils of our God. Think about that. We don't just gather to pray on Sunday morning. We don't just pray before our services. We don't just pray before our meals because it's wishful thinking. We pray because we have a high priest in heaven who sits on the throne. And when we pray, we give glory to God. We honor him. We submit ourselves to him. And and in that, our prayers are pleasing to him. They're a sweet-smelling incense. This incense in verse 4, it, it, it rose with the prayers of the saints before God from the hand of the angel. I mean, just imagine this, this, this scene. We, we pray. Christ intercedes. Our prayers are smoke that goes up. And an angel hands our prayers in this golden bowl before the throne of God. And God is pleased. This should encourage the persecuted saint. This should encourage all of us who are in Christ. And so when they pray, it is picking up on chapter 5, verse 8. We looked at it. It should be a previous page in your, in your Bible. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Remember, each one of these sections runs concurrently. We're just seeing it from a different angle. Here's when the lamb receives the scroll. Now he's going to open it up. But also, here's the fifth seal. Chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So, Church on earth, earth looking on what's going on in heaven. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. The Lord knows his people. He knows his sheep. He hears the cries of people. We read it in Psalm 18 earlier. But there are more who need to come in. And I do want to look at Psalm 18 again. I want you to see why I chose this. Because look at all the imagery in Psalm 18. We read it earlier, but I want you just to pay attention because everything we're looking at. Starting in verse 6. In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice. The temple imagery is important here. And my cry to him reached his ears. So what does God do when his people cry out? When his people say, my enemies are too much for me, they're afflicting me, what does God do? 
It gets quiet for half an hour. And then he rouses himself. And then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also, the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. Here's the coals we're going to see just in a moment that he pours out on the earth. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub, an angel, and flew. Everything we're seeing in in our passage, um, David saw here as he's looking prophetically ahead. He made darkness his covering and his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. We're going to see those in just a moment, too. Brothers and sisters, when the people of God are afflicted, God is angry. This is why we don't have to take vengeance. He's got enough vengeance for all of us. And you watch out when he comes for his people. This is the promise. And this is the picture that we get here. Verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashings and lightnings and earthquake. That same phrasing the thunder, the rumblings, the lightning, and the earthquake. This is all throughout the book of Revelation. When God speaks, when God does something, his awesome power and authority, pay attention. The whole earth will know it. This is meant for the persecuted church. I know your suffering. I know your difficulty. I hear your prayers, and I'm coming. But in the meantime... There are trumpets, there are warnings, because there are still more out there who need to repent. And so that's what these warnings are for. So there are seven of them. Um, Seven, uh, there's also Ezekiel chapter 10. I want to look at that real quick, because this is a direct quotation from Ezekiel, or a direct allusion to Ezekiel. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above something like a sapphire, an appearance like a throne. This is Ezekiel, seeing it hundreds of years earlier. And he said to the man clothed in linen, go among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from beneath the cherubim and scatter it over the city. And he went in before my eyes. These are what these trumpets represent. God's judgment, the prayers of the the, the saints in coal, burning coals that he's throwing out on the earth against the wicked. Last time, the seals showed how there'd be persecution against the saints. This time, We're going to see how there's judgment against the wicked. So there are seven of them. Um, So now that we got the uh, picture of what's going on, we're going to move kind of quickly through the uh, trumpets. But again, the trumpets announce judgment, and they're carried out by the Lord's angels. So before we go any further, I know this is difficult and hard for some people to hear. But we need to understand this. Our God is sovereign over all things, even judgment, even calamity, even difficulty. Here's what Isaiah says, Isaiah 45, 5 and 7. Five through seven. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the setting sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. For many people and most Christians, your God is too small. I've heard so many Christians say, well, I know that's a terrible thing, but that's not God's will. It's not? 
That means God is not in control of this particular circumstance. That means God is either helpless or unwilling or unable to intervene. That is not the God we see in Scripture. But our God is so good and so righteous and so holy, even judgment is good and righteous when it comes from him. All right. So as you see these, these are all forceful actions. They are being being, uh, carried out by angels. We'll see throwing down and throwing into the sea and falling and being struck. And this is loaded with Old Testament symbolism. I wish I could get into it all. But I want you to notice the parallels to the plagues of Egypt. Notice, remember what God was doing in Egypt. Pharaoh held himself up as a God himself. Pharaoh says, I can stand before the people of Israel. Who is this God of Israel? And God embarrassed and dismantled all of his false gods one by one and wreaked havoc, but he would not repent. Even unto death, he still raged, following God's people into the Red Sea and being drowned. That is a microcosm of what is going on in the world right now. God is showing the foolishness of all the false gods, but they will refuse to repent. Uh, Also, you're going to see the the term third come up a lot. So a third of the earth, a third of the people, a third of the, the plants. Okay, why? Remember last week, when something is mentioned three times, holy, 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 it is supreme, it is to be paid attention to. When you have a third, it's just partial. Holy, 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 God is holy, 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 he's all of the holiness. This is only a third of the judgment. This is just a glimpse of what's to come. This is just a a, a fraction. It's not meant to be exact. It's meant to give us an idea. God has more judgment coming. This is is just the appetizer. So, number one, the earth is afflicted. This is the seventh plague in Egypt. Remember Psalm 18. There is hail and fire that comes down. Pretty straightforward. So you got the the, the earth in the first trumpet. The second trumpet, the the mountains and the rivers are affected. But notice here, it's something like a great mountain. In the Old Testament, uh, cities and nations are often associated with with mountains. God God, um, puts curses on mountains because nations would associate themselves with where they uh, worship. So something like a great mountain. God's destroying uh, nations and seas and water, and, and water turns to blood. Should be pretty straightforward. If you have been to Sunday school, uh, you know that happened in Egypt as well. Uh, the next one, the, uh, the third trumpet. The rivers, the, the springs, and the waters are affected. Uh, wormwood is mentioned twice here. It's a, it's a bitter plant, but anytime you see wormwood in the Old Testament, it is affliction. He turns what is sweet and what is drinkable into what is bitter and what is difficult. That is what God is doing. Um, The fourth one, it affects the sun, the moon, the stars. Uh, That also happened in Egypt where it went dark. And so this is literal but more figurative. The world hates light. The the, uh, lampstands are a light to the world. The churches would be God's witnesses. Okay, you don't want my witnesses, you hate my witnesses, I'm going to give you darkness. I'm going to remove any kind of light. I'm going to remove anything that is good for you. And I will afflict you. 
the first four are like the first four seals, like the first four horsemen. They affect those on the earth. But now there's an interlude because there are those on the earth who get afflicted. Or excuse me, the earth gets afflicted. Now, look at verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Remember the threes. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. The first four are to the earth, now to those who dwell on the earth. There's more trumpets blasting, and it's getting worse. Now, here's another thing we need to know about eagles. We like eagles. We're Americans. We have, you know, bald eagles are our bird. These are vicious killers. They're not, they're, they're, they're not cute and uh, patriotic then. They're, they're carrion birds, meaning that they eat flesh. They will eat, if you, they'll eat you if you're alive. They'll eat you if you're dead. They mean death. When eagles show up, something is either dead or about to die. So when they see it, they see birds of death. And so now, death is coming. Now we're getting into the fifth trumpet, which is like the fifth seal. Remember, we just looked at the the, the fifth seal. We see the saints in heaven around the altar who made it through the persecution. Now we're going to see the wicked, the, the, the contrast between the church and those who will be influenced and afflicted by Satan on earth. Uh, so again, different vantage points. Fifth seal to fifth trumpet. We're going to spend a little bit of time on the fifth trumpet because the text does, and there's a lot of helpful uh, context here. The fifth angel blew his trumpet and said, I saw a star falling from heaven to earth, and he, okay, symbolism here, he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. That's a sermon in itself. Um, but if you know your Bible, that should ring to mind. There's a star that falls. First, in Isaiah chapter 14, gives us a prophecy. Um, Isaiah 14, which we'll get to Jesus' quotations in a couple moments. But Isaiah 14, look at this, this star. How you, Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars. And I will set my throne on high. This star wants to be God. I will sit in the moment, excuse me, in the mount of assembly, in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Sounds pretty arrogant. This star was cast down to earth. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 10, 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He also says this, and I brought all these in because it brings it together. John chapter 12, verse 31. Notice, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So uh, we're going to get into this more in in, in, uh, chapter 20. But the idea is, like in Job, Satan had free reign to go before the throne and to accuse the saints. Tries to place himself up against God. Now that the Savior has come, he is cast out of heaven. He is sent down. And in him being sent down, this is the judgment of the world now. 
He no longer can accuse the saints before heaven. Again, well, I'm really trying to hold off on, on, on chapter 20 because we're going to lean in there. This is important because Satan, who is cast down into the, uh, the uh, bottomless pit, he's still given control and authority. We'll get to that in just a moment. Um, but notice this is recapitulation or this is a reiteration in chapter 12. Probably the same page in your Bibles. That's going to be our next section next next week, chapter 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, or as Jesus says, cast out. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. More on that next week as we get into that that text. So, this is what's going on in the spiritual realm. The first half of the book, chapters 1 through 11, is what's going on in the world. Uh, Next week, we're going to begin the latter half, which is the conflict between Christ and Satan. And so, in our text this morning, he is cast out. He's given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. What is the bottomless pit? The bottomless pit is all throughout the book of Revelation. Again, we'll see it in, in chapter 11, comes up in chapter 17, chapter 20. The bottomless pit is the realm of evil. It is Sheol. It is, it is the land of the dead. And there's a, a picture of it being a shaft. And, and there's, there's a door that can be opened and, and, and um, evil can kind of come and go. This is the pre-judgment home of evil. It's not the eternal place of evil. But for now, there is a deep pit. And so when he's cast out, he's given some authority. He's given a key. And as, we, as it goes on, there's affliction, there is torment. But notice verse 4. When the evil smoke rises out, and the smoke like locusts were given power, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green plant, nor any tree. Satan doesn't have any, any control over the natural realm, but he only has control over those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. He is able to afflict the unsealed, the evil ones. This is an encouragement to the saints. The sealed are safe. If you are sealed in Christ, Satan has no power over you. He may send his his minions to afflict you, but he is limited. Um, This goes on. Uh, Have you ever wondered what a demon looks like? Everyone's face popped up really quick. Uh, we're, we're going to see it here. Um, I just thought this was interesting. Notice that when people try to get ultra-literal, like, oh, what does the, uh, the, the, the locust with a head like a man look like? Notice how many likes are here. These are, these are similes. John can't put into words we can understand what a demon looks like, but he gives us a picture. Verse 7, And the appearance of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Remember, horses are war animals. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. They, they seemed to have authority and power and prestige. Their faces were like human faces. There's emotion. There's expression. Their hair's like a woman's hair. I don't know. And, they're, they're <laughs> and they're, their teeth are like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and that sting like scorpions. And their power to hurt people. 
that's a demon. And the demons have a king. So if you're not really quite sure that that reference is to Satan, look at verse 11. They have a king over them, and he is the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, both meaning destroyer. That's the first woe. But as we read that, wait a second, Satan's got a key? Yeah, it's on Jesus' keychain. Remember chapter 1, verse 18. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Even Satan's dominion, even Satan's key, is loaned to him by God. Jesus is the one who holds the key to death and Hades, and he gives it to Satan for a time, but he will not have it forever. The sixth seal. Now we get into increased judgment and uh, warfare. This is, again, it is full of wicked imagery, this innumerable army, two million soldiers, horse, lion, serpents, heads for tails, vicious stuff. This is war, and it's going to take out a third of the population. This, again, is more judgment upon more judgment. And what's the purpose of all this? What's the purpose of all these, these uh, trumpets? Going down to verse 20. The rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues, excuse me, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent. All this Egyptian imagery, the whole point, let my people go, repent, look to the God Almighty, save yourself from judgment. Nope, we're not going to. Nope, we're not going to. They would not repent of their murderers or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their, their, their thefts. They, they worship their idols. So just like the sixth seal and the seventh, now between the sixth trumpet and the seventh, there's an interlude. Before we get to the seventh trumpet, there's more that has to be revealed. Uh, chapter 10. They saw another mighty angel. Um, so before we get into this, what does this mean exactly? Chapter 10. I don't know. I can tell you roughly. I will tell you what we, we, we do know. Um, and I'll tell you why we don't know in a moment. First thing, angels are warriors. This is an angel to be feared. He's coming down from heaven. He's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs are like pillars of fire. This is someone you do not want to mess with. And the Lord sent him to deliver a message, and he had a little scroll in his hand. Again, what is a scroll? It's a divine decree. Um, and what is this little scroll? You guessed it. I don't know. Um, so many commentators with so many speculations, and so I'm not going to do it. But he's given a decree by God. He's got one hand on land, one hand, on, or excuse me, one foot on land, one foot on the sea. What does that mean? Whatever's in this scroll is going to affect all of creation. Okay. And why are we not supposed to know? He gives it to John. Look at verse five. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raising his right hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it. He looks at the Almighty God and said that there will be no more delay. When will there be no more delay? That in the days of the trumpet, of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. There's a mystery that is given to John. How do we not, how do, why do we not know what's going on in chapter 10? Because only John knows, God and John, 
And John's not supposed to tell us. So, so far, the, the, the coronation of the Lamb set this in motion. He opened the seals. He sends out the, uh, the uh, trumpets. The, the, the six trumpets have been announcing to the world, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, and on the seventh trumpet, a mystery will be revealed. What's a mystery? We don't know. But what we do know, book of Ephesians, if I could like just define the book of Ephesians in a sentence, it is gospel mysteries revealed. What is the mystery of chapter 2? That the Jews and the Gentiles who were once were separated, now there is one people. What is the mystery of chapter 5? That Christ in his church is this beautiful marriage that points us to husband and wife. The mysteries we need, we have. These are the gospel promises. Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord, but those he's given us, they're for our good and for the, the, the generations. So when we get confused, why can't I know this mystery? You know the mystery you need to know. These mysteries are amazing, that God has reconciled the Jew and the Gentile through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That, that, that God has brought a bride, the people of Christ, and united him to himself. This mystery Marriage points us to Christ, the ultimate husband, and we, the, the unlikely sanctified bride, get to come together. The gospel is the mystery that God took on flesh and walked among us. That when he walked among us, he lived perfectly. He was the, 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 the perfect lamb without spot or blemish. He kept the law so that he could be a perfect sacrifice, so that he could die and pay the penalty for sin so that he could rise again, that we might have new life in him, so that he might rise from this earth and be ascended into heaven, so that he may open the seals, so that he may blow the trumpets, so that he may blow the final trumpet when he comes back. Those mysteries are given to us. Don't get caught up in the little mysteries. We should be in awe and wonder that God has revealed the gospel to us. But John is in a bit of torment here. The last section. John says, take the, or the, the voice of the angel says, take the scroll and eat it. He says, take it and eat it. It'll be uh, sweet to your mouth and bitter in your stomach. So why is this? Um, the prophet Ezekiel also had to eat a little scroll. Uh, and it was sweet to him. And it was actually sweet in his stomach. Because he got to tell it. He got to share it. The word of God is always sweet to, the, to his people. But reading and digesting judgment is bitter. And John had to hold on to this. He had to keep it to himself. And it, and it, and it turned his stomach. Imagine that. How hard it is to read about people being killed and judgment coming to those we love. And then John has to take this and he can't share it. But he must continue to prophesy. Verse 11. Now, verse, now, chapter 11 seems out of place. But this is another encouraging chapter. The symbolism is important here. Chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod. Wait a second. We got scrolls and trumpets and locusts and uh, eating um, you know, honey scrolls. And now we got a measuring rod. What is going on here? The symbolism is important. And we don't think much about a measuring rod, but measuring rod was a tool of a wealthy man 
who knew every detail of what he owned. He measured all that was, that was his because he paid attention to it, because he, he, he kept it, he uh, marked it. And so here, what is John measuring? He's measuring the temple of God. This is important. He is not measuring a future temple yet to be built. He's not measuring something earthly because we don't get dimensions here. He's measuring a temple that exists right now. He does the same thing at the end of the book of Ezekiel. He is measuring a, 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 a temple. And we, we looked at who is the temple, what is the temple last week. Because of the atonement of the Lamb, notice what he says here. He measure three times. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. There's an important distinction here. The temple is associated with its worshipers because of the sacrifice of the Lamb, because of the righteousness of Christ. As we looked at last week, Paul told us we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is God saying, I measure and I know my people. Don't fear judgment. Don't fear the final day. I have a record of every one of you. I know exactly where you are. I know my worshipers. That's why he doesn't measure the outer courts. They're not his. He's not concerned with them. They do not make it into the tally. Here's another important detail. Remember the, the, the earthly temple. There is a inner sanctuary. There's the court of the Gentiles, and then there's the, uh, or excuse me, the, the court of the Jews and the outer court of the Gentiles. There's no more outer court in this new temple. Remember the mystery we just talked about a moment ago? The Jews and the Gentiles, we are all worshipers. Right now, there is only in Christ or apart from Christ. The outer temple is where the false teaching and the, uh, the uh, false worship and those, those um, false converts are. Don't measure them. Don't worry about them. Only those who are my temple. Only those who are united to Christ. He knows his own. There are no protection for those outside of Christ. So what's the reminder here? Until the seventh trumpet, God is building his temple. Until the seventh trumpet, God knows every one of his sheep. When they cry, how long? Take your white robe and rest a little bit. I've still got more. I'm building it. But, what does it say here? Leave the outer court out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. We see this. The world tramples over, leads astray, confuses those who are Christians in name only. Those who are false worshipers, they will be trampled on for this time. Uh, now we're going to get into some, um, some uh, numbers here, uh, which can easily be confusing. Uh, multiples of seven, all of them. So they're, remember seven, it's complete, it's, it's symbolic. So in the next couple chapters, we're going to see numbers. We're going to see days, we're going to see months, and we're going to see years. Um, but I just want to kind of just lay this out and help you here. This is, again, the, the perfect picture of the church age, the complete church age. Why months? Why days? 
Um, and why, why years? Why 1260? Why seven months? Say it with me. I don't know. But what I do know is that the time of trampling and persecution is 42 months. Seven months times six, or six months times seven, whatever one you want. Um, But look, same period of time in our next section, chapter 13, verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Here's the uh, trampling of the temple for 42 months. Here's what the beast is is doing. Um, Next, we're going to see a time in the very next verse uh, that they will, the two witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days. Guess how many months 1,260 days are? 42. Also, in our next section, chapter 12, verse 6. And a woman fled in the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So, same amount of time that there is persecution and that there is nourishment and uh, witnessing. Also, you're going to see a period of three and a half years. I wonder how many days are in three and a half years. 1,260. I wonder how many months are in three and a half years. 42 if each month has, has, has 30. Um, so we'll see that in a moment, but also in our next section, chapter 12, verse 14. But the woman who, gave, who was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to be in a place where she is to be nourished for times, times, and half. Time, singular, times, plural, and half a time. Three and a half years. So we're seeing the same amount of time, three and a half. Again, I don't know why these numbers, I, I, I do know that... Um, it feels good to say, I don't know, but we do know that they are the same time period. God is showing us the same things from different aspects. All right. So during this time, there are two witnesses. Uh, from the Old Testament, any testimony requires two witnesses at least. These witnesses are olive trees and lampstands, um, two olive trees and two lampstands. Why? Remember the, remember the lampstands, what are they? They are light. What do you need to keep fire going? Oil. Uh, So all we know for sure is that these two keep the light going. And they have attributes like Elijah. They can stop the rain. They have attributes like like, like Moses. They can part the sea and uh, send send plagues. Um, This, again, is directly from Zechariah chapter 4. Again, we could probably do a commentary on Revelation just from Zechariah. But Zechariah chapter 4, where Zechariah asked a very good question. Who are those two? And the second time I I, I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which we have golden oil, from the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? He says, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Well, that clears it up. Um, Are they real? Are they symbolic? I don't know. But here's what we do know. They will be here for that entire period. The Lord has witnesses. The Lord's light will not go out. His lampstands will have continual oil. And even during that time, chapter 9, verse, uh, or um, continuing on in the middle here, in chapter 9, verse 1, there is the angel of the bottomless pit. But here in verse 7 of chapter 11, 
Uh, when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Okay, there's a time when the testimony will finish. We also, uh, when we get to chapter 20, he'll be let out for a time. He will kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street. They are symbolically Sodom, Egypt. Uh, Sodom is sexual immorality. Egypt is oppression. Uh, Babylon, wickedness. Where the Lord was crucified. How long? How long? For three and a half days. So half tribulation. There's another, and after three and a half days, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna rise again, and then the final judgment will come. How do we know it's a final judgment? The hour, the the hour is coming where there's a great earthquake. Verse thirteen. A tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were, were killed. I'm sure there's a lot more than seven thousand, but again, symbolic. And the rest were terrified and gave, and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the th- third woe is soon to come. Okay, so. All that. What is that leading us up to? The Lord has marked his people. The Lord has marked his times. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be martyrdom. Satan has some power. But there will be a final victory. And now we get to the beauty of the seventh trumpet. Anyone remember from your your Bible stories? When's a time where the seventh trumpet comes into play? You guys remember, see them like dads whispering, whispering to their, their kids right now. You remember Joshua in this little city that they march around with uh, trumpets? How many times they march around? Seven. <laughs> How many times did they march around on the seventh day? How many priests did they have? And what happened when the final trumpet sounded? Everyone rejoiced and the wall fell down and they had instant victory. And then another little detail that we'll see in a moment. The ark was with them the entire time. The very presence of God was with them. The last trumpet sound is a blessing for believers. It is a cause for praise. And what's interesting here is that we saw the lamb's name in chapter 8. We don't see the name of Christ again until verse 15 of chapter 11. And I was thinking, like, man, doesn't that, isn't that how the Christian life feels? Like, man, we know that the Lamb is in control, but, man, we just had three chapters of ugliness, of Satan, of war, of, of, of death. That's so uh, typical that we see all the death and chaos around us. When we see the, uh, the uh, news and believers are like, this must be God's judgment. Viruses and uh, wars and uh, famines, are they? Yes, they are. We live in a fallen world that God is always judging and God is always reminding us that there is sin and there is wickedness and there is death. But those who have ears to hear, they listen and they repent. They don't shut their ears like, like, like Egypt did. And we know that this is only but a taste of the final judgment to come. But we know when he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found. We don't worry about the six trumpets because we know what happens on the seventh trumpet. We know that the city of this world will come down like Jericho. We know that the people will shout with victory. We know that God will give over the promised land to his people. The seventh trumpet symbolizes our victory. 
We see that in first, many places, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So often you, this is used as a tool of manipulation and of fear. But the trumpet is to be an encouragement. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Most people stop there. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is meant to be an encouragement, brothers and sisters. All the songs we sang this morning, I don't know if you noticed, but every one of the last verses looks to his coming, looks to his return. Because we are a hopeful people. We are a people with the promise of a God who is victorious. And I want to look at some of these details in our last few moments. Chapter 11. This is what I want you to walk away with. Notice everything that happens at the seventh trumpet. We look for all these things in the return of Christ. First thing, the union of heaven and earth. We see this from in uh, Revelation chapter 21. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The heavenly Jerusalem has come down. The old has passed away. The new is now here. His kingdom, there is a kingdom that we are to look forward to, but the, the next kingdom we see will be an eternal one. Not, a, not a, a partial imperfect one, but an eternal one. His kingdom forever. And the, the 24 elders, verse 16, remember the elders are the representatives of the people. All the representatives of the people, the 12 patriarchs, the, the, the 12 apostles, they will fall down on their faces and worship because there is completion. They give thanks to the Lord God the Almighty. Notice, this is very important. How do we know that, that, that John is seeing the consummation of all things here? We remember this formula. The Lord who was, who is, and who is to come, but that's not in the text. Who was, who is, he's already came. John is seeing through this vision the fullness, the fulfillment of his kingdom. And how do we know? How do we know that it's the kingdom of God on full display? For you, notice these are all past tense. For you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations raged, past tense, but your wrath came, past tense. The nations will rage, but wrath is coming. And the time for the dead to be judged has also come. And at that judgment, the saints are not worried about what will happen to unbelievers. What is the, remember, judgment is just to decide. When the king comes, he will reward his servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, for the destroying of the destroyers on earth. We are conquerors. Saints, this is what you see. When Christ returns, his kingdom will become one forever in which he will reign forever. His great power, the nations will have raged past tense, but they did not win. His wrath was poured out on them in final judgment. He will judge the living and the dead, but we, in Christ, because of his righteousness, we have rewards. The prophets, the saints, those who fear him. And then verse 19. And then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. And there were flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. God is confirming that my ark, my presence is with my people. Take comfort that the final trumpet means you will be with me forever. This is the consummation and conclusion of all things. 
So this ends the first half of our book. 1 through 11, we see the church in conflict with the world. Next week, we'll begin the, the conflict between Christ and Satan. But just very quickly, I don't want you to be intimidated or overwhelmed by this book. I know we went through a lot today. I just want you to be encouraged at how God's word agrees so consistently from beginning to end. And how everything that God has been doing to redeem his people is preparing us for his final revelation. It may be overwhelming, but just focus on the last section. If you know Christ, that last trumpet is coming. And he's coming for you. And it is a day of joy and rejoicing. If you don't know Christ, that last trumpet coming means that you will feel the full weight of his wrath. Again, when he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found. It may be dark now. It may seem like sin is everywhere. But our Savior holds the keys. The risen Lamb is our conquering King. He is victorious, and in Him, so are we. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that we have in Christ. May this time be sobering for us. Would we just rest in the finished work of Christ and look to him as this uh, table represents? Lord, would you be honored in everything that's said and sung today? Would your, your people stay awake? Because we do not know the day, we do not know the hour, but we know that it is coming, it is promised. And for us, it means a reunion, it means a restoration, it means a consummation, it means a celebration. And this table is just a foretaste of that celebration. In Christ's name we pray, amen.